Welcome to the world of critical care. Today's episode is going to continue the electrolyte series, and we're going to be talking about magnesium. Now, I want to do something a little bit different. Today, I'm going to talk about magnesium, hypomagnesemia, and we're also going to talk about hyper magnesemia. So we're going to talk about all of them in one episode. My goal is to be a little more focused, try to get in about 20 minutes. Magnesium, I think, is one of our electrolytes that often maybe is not on the the front lines of our priority list, but I think as we start to realize its critical role chemically, we'll start to realize, especially when you start working in some of the specialized ICUs, how critical magnesium is. Magnesium is actually involved as a cofactor in over 300 enzymatic reactions. It is critical in the functioning of DNA, RNA, with adenosine triphosphate and the hydrolyzation of that phosphate, so in that ATPase enzyme system, magnesium is critical. We could not have normal respiration occurring. So our aerobic and anaerobic respiration, when they're occurring, the ability to hydrolyze that ATP to to harvest that phosphate, we could not do that without magnesium. And that shows its role in things like the sodium-potassium pump. Remember, the sodium-potassium pump is an ATP-ACE-driven pump. It requires energy. And so because of that, if you do not have enough magnesium, we don't have normal functioning of the electrolytic cell. And so things like our muscle contractions can be altered, our nervous system, our signaling pathways, and that includes our cardiac cells and, and our heart function are critically reliant upon magnesium. Remember in our cardiac cycle, we talked about this with magnesium in that when we have that initial depolarization where sodium rushes into the cell, so we have the cell was negative, it's now predominantly positive because all the sodium rushes in, right? That's that spike, right? We see in that initial depolarization, but then those sodium channels close and what happens? calcium is able to go in in those long type channels, right? So it goes in more slowly in kind of that plateau phase. Well, calcium influx in the cell is largely the inhibition or the inactivation of this is because of magnesium. And so magnesium plays a critical role in this process. Also, magnesium has a really important interconnected pathway with calcium and with phosphorus. And so again, and we also see this somewhat with potassium. And so we can't really look at electrolytes in a vacuum. And I think that's one of the things to always remember when we look at electrolytes. We need to look at the whole picture, not just a small piece. Now, magnesium is, again, like many of the others we've talked about, sodium, potassium. So this one is going to be a group two alkaline earth metal. Now, it carries a plus two charge. Now, what that simply means is that it's deficient to electrons, so it would love to have two electrons. And so it's pretty reactive on its own, so it loves to form stable salts. And so, of course... In critical care, you're mostly going to see salt formations of magnesium being given. Now, when we look at magnesium levels, we run into a similar problem like we had with potassium in that 
Remember, potassium is predominantly intracellular, and so we measure potassium levels with a plasma or a serum lab value, but approximately 1% of total body K is in the serum. And so, of course, it can be incredibly sensitive, the lab, because it can be hard to understand the full potassium picture when we're measuring from just what is really 1% of total body K. Now, with magnesium, we have a similar problem because if we take our theoretical 70 kilo male, we typically are going to have about 2,000 milliequivalents of potassium, or excuse me, of magnesium in the body. So, a 70 kilo male, they're going to have about 2,000 milliequivalents of magnesium. Now, about 53% of that is in the bone. And then we start to look at about 27% in the muscles, and it plays a critical role in our muscular functioning. But then we have about 19% in the soft tissue. And interestingly, in our red blood cells, there's about 0.7%. And our plasma has 0.3% of total body magnesium. And when you start thinking about that, that's approximately 6 milliequivalents. So 6 milliequivalents of the 2,000 milliequivalents of total body K is where we are measuring our magnesium lab values. Again, it can be extremely hard to understand total body magnesium from a plasma value. But that's typically what we're looking at. Now, we do prefer serum over plasma. Remember, a plasma lab value is often in a citrated green top. And so because of that, one of our challenges is that the citrate can bind with the magnesium, potentially altering the level, which is why it's often preferred to be a serum lab value. Now, magnesium is somewhat protein-bound, and so often that will influence the way the lab results are given. Something to think about is that over 60% of ICU patients typically are magnesium-depleted. Even if the lab value does not say one is magnesium-depleted, most people do have some level of magnesium deficiency. Now, interestingly, different regions geographically across the world and even in the United States and different people's dietary choices can significantly influence total body magnesium. But most often people do tend to have some level of magnesium depletion. Now, one of our interesting things about magnesium is it has some similarities to what we talked about with potassium. Remember, hyperkalemia is really concerning because if our serum level is high, we know there's a whole lot more potassium inside the cells, so we're pretty concerned. Similarly with magnesium, we're thinking about it because most of your magnesium is not in our serum. It's not in our plasma. And so if we have low plasma magnesium levels, we really are starting to say we probably are truly magnesium depleted. And conversely, if we're, we have a really high serum mag level, we're really thinking, okay, what's going on here? Because we know normally most of our, our magnesium is not in our serum. It's not going to be there. Now, a normal magnesium level in general is approximately like 1.7 to 3 milligrams per deciliter 
if you're looking at it in a milk equivalent per liter, again, 1.4 to 2.4. I know our hospital uses a milk equivalent per liter system. Um, now, we have some situations where there's little variations from labs, etc. But many times we're looking at a moderate hypo magnesia level somewhere when we start dipping under that 1.2 milligrams per deciliter to 1 to 1.4 mil equivalents per liter. And we're getting in the severe world when we're starting to get under 1.2 milligrams per deciliter or one mil equivalent per liter. Now, Pushing magnesium levels a bit above normal is a bit less concerning. And in fact, there's a lot of targeted therapy that we do specifically from a cardiac standpoint. And so often you might see levels such as like 3.6 up to like 4 to 5 even milliequivalents per liter. Or we could do a slight conversion of milligrams per deciliter. And that can be a bit less concerning. We are above a normal range, but... Our, our risk to reward, we have way more risk when we're in a depleted state. And so again, we're not too worried about that mild level. We do start to get concerned when we move into a severe hypermagnesemia state. And, and this is where we're really looking at something when we're pushing the like 12 milligrams per deciliter or that 10 milliequivalent per liter range. That's where we really start to say we're going to be a bit worried. Now, at a high level, when we have significantly elevated magnesium levels, we typically are going to see things like muscle weakness, respiratory distress, apnea. We start slowly progressing into heart block or like really severe bradycardia. And sometimes the, the neurological symptoms can be really hit or miss, but we might see things like delirium or coma. Now, a step before that, as they get really high, we're looking at things like lethargy, confusion, nausea, vomiting, and a little bit of bradycardia. Conversely, what we tend to be much more concerned with is hypomagnesemia. So when we're really starting to get low, often some of the first things we start to see are those concurrent electrolyte abnormalities. So a lot of times we're also going to be hypokalemic. We're going to be hypocalcemic. We're going to start to maybe have a little bit of neuromuscular irritability, some spasticity we could be looking at, maybe a little tremor, though often, again, our neurological symptoms aren't there. But the biggest concern is our severe hypomagnesemia. This is where we start to have our arrhythmias. We start moving into a longer and longer QT. We can see things like seizures, nystagmus, tetany. We even can see things like psychosis. This is one of the reasons, too, like like magnesium infusions are used for neurological prophylaxis when we have preeclamptic uh, women in the ICU. This is something that we're working with. And so, again, it's, it's a neuroprotective measure that's being done. And so that's kind of our high-level overview of, of our magnesium ranges and what we are concerned about. Now let's talk about hypomagnesemia. So we have a decreased magnesium level. Now I personally work in a cardiovascular ICU where this tends to be a pretty significant concern because you get a lot of hearts that tend to be a little more irritable. And we often have hearts too where we're already dealing with other electrolyte abnormalities like hypokalemia. And so those things interact and can worsen pre-existing conditions. And so hypomagnesemia is really 
what we're most concerned about and what you'll encounter most often in critical care, especially in the CV and the, and the cardiac ICU world. Now, let's think through some of the things and, and, and just think through the, the mechanics of what we're concerned about. Remember, magnesium is critical in the regulation of calcium moving into the cells. And so if magnesium is not able to appropriately regulate calcium, what we tend to see is an elongation of that plateau phase after the initial depolarization. And so from a cardiac standpoint, we tend to see a lengthening of the PR, the QT, and even the QRS. Now, what can happen is this can actually worsen things like AFib, actually. This can actually worsen like uh, multifocal atrial tack. And so a lot of our atrial arrhythmias can actually be worsened by magnesium depletion, though we often think of it more from a ventricular arrhythmia standpoint or the concern with torsades, which, of course, is kind of its own episode but it's a slightly irregular, but very clinically easily noticed uh, VT arrhythmia that is directly related to magnesium depletion. And thankfully, with rapid magnesium resuscitation can usually be um, eliminated. So we talked about prolonged PR, QT, QRS, right? Opening up where we had that initial depolarization, right? Because we're extending that plateau phase. We talked about the fact of torsades, but what it also, the big concern is that from a, from a CV perspective, a lot of your post-cardiac surgery patients are uniquely predisposed to hypomagnesia, but in even more so because their hearts tend to be more irritable, they become very sensitive. And so you'll see in a lot of CV ICUs or even a cardiac ICU where it will be done where there are going to be magnesium infusion protocol orders that are actually prophylactic post-surgery because we really want to prevent the preventable because pushing a magnesium up a little bit above normal is not a significant concern. Now, neuromuscularly, there's a lot of debate I looked at in some of the literature about how often they're actually present. Now, in the preeclamptic population, it is absolutely true you see a lot of neurological symptoms. And that, again, is a whole separate episode. But some of the things that may or may not be present include things like seizure, delirium. We could see things like cerebellar dysfunction, paresthesias, cramps, tremors, hyperreflexia. We could see tetany. Um, I've seen patients that have shown some of these before with really severe depletion. Now, these are some of our clinical manifestations we might see from it. And so the next thing we start to have asking is what is the underlying reason we're losing the magnesium? And so one, is it a loss or is it a lack of intake? And so of course you're in an ED, you have a medic, you're in a medical ICU and you know, you have a patient coming in. One of our first questions we might ask is, okay, we don't really know anything about this patient. So we want to ask, do we have a deficiency coming in? So an intake, do we have an issue with magnesium levels being 
excreted or have we lost the magnesium somewhere or do we have some other electrolyte abnormality that is worsening it or are we on a medication potentially that is causing an issue here and so let's first start with intake so intake on your uh, chronic malnourished patients most have significant magnesium depletion this is especially true on your chronic alcoholics they tend to have a a uh, specific depletion a lot of times it's more so due to the to chronic kind of the inflammatory diarrhea that occurs from chronic alcoholism but it's also the thiamine deficiency and so we have multiple different mechanisms there plus a lot of people just who are chronic alcoholics have poorer overall nutritional intake and so we have multiple factors there that could help diminish magnesium levels and so that's something to really think about also to remember there's a little bit of a diuretic effect from alcohol intake. So again, we could be excreting it at a higher rate than normal. So something to think about, is this an intake issue? Other things to think about, and sometimes it can be helpful, is are we excreting magnesium at an abnormal level? A magnesium urine value can be helpful. So most people don't really excrete that much magnesium. And in fact, the body's very good when you start to have a decreased intake and your serum level drops, your body really pretty quickly tapers off the excretion of magnesium. But, and we'll talk about this in a bit, other electrolyte abnormalities can significantly worsen your magnesium level. And so that's something to think about. So if you have hypercalcemia, it actually promotes hypomagnesemia. If you have hyperphosphatemia, so your phosphate levels are really high, it actually promotes low mag levels. If you have diabetic ketoacidosis, it promotes hypomagnesemia. And we talked about it, but like a starvation ketoacidosis, right? Again, it promotes that. But what's really interesting is that then hypomagnesemia promotes hypocalcemia and hypokalemia. And remember, you always have to think of potassium and magnesium related together. When your mag levels are low, it actually causes increased potassium wasting. That's why, remember, remember, always, always, if your K is low and your mag's low, often replacing your mag is more beneficial than actually just replacing your potassium. So these are things we want to look at. We want to look at the whole picture. We want to look at the excretion levels of your magnesium, but we also want to look at things like our other electrolyte abnormalities. And that's why we want to look at medications too, because things like our loop diuretics, like Lasix, well, they cause a significant decrease in magnesium because again, they promote potassium wasting. We could have antibiotics like aminoglycosides they can cause a significant depletion of magnesium because of their effect of magnesium reuptake in the kidneys. And so it gets excreted. Those are really common antibiotics. We could look at other antibiotics like uh, amphotericin. We can look at a medication like digitalis, which actually magnesium infusion is actually one of our treatments for digitalis toxicity, but it, it will cause decreased magnesium. And so again, we have some of our chemotherapy medications like cisplatin. We've also talked about things, some very specific conditions. We talked about alcohol abuse. We talked about diabetes. But we also have things like acute MIs can actually cause a decrease in our magnesium levels. 
And so we want to think about the medication story because a lot of our patients in the ICU are on multiple of these different medications, which can help paint a picture of the full clinical picture. The other thing we want to think about too is losses that may not be super obvious. So this is, again, vomiting, NG suction, significant diarrhea. I think diarrhea is one of the biggest ones because it's so prevalent in the ICU. And so again, if we're already looking at a situation where maybe our tube feeding's not at goal, we haven't started tube feeding, we're having a lot of diarrhea, the patient probably already came in with a depleted total body magnesium level. Again, these are things we want to be thinking about because again, you are the gatekeeper as the bedside nurse. So as far as our, our treatment for magnesium, we it's it's in a lot of ways a fairly straightforward process to think about. So to begin, there's really only two situations where we really want to be careful about our magnesium. So one, if you have myasthenia gravis, of course, this is something where we got to be a little bit careful because it can really increase muscle weakness and then severe renal failure. We're talking, you know, you're at that end stage renal, your GFR is like under 30. Okay this could cause some significant magnesium accumulation. So we want to think about those situations. Uh, as we start to think of it too, we want to think about oral versus IV replacement for magnesium. W- one of our, our biggest issues is with, with oral medications is the potential for interaction with other medications. So we want to think about things like calcium channel blockers or tetracyclines. A lot of times you're looking at magnesium oxide. It's a lot of times it's like one to three doses and it's 400 milligrams. Or we do milk of magnesia, which is usually like a 15 mil dose. The one concern about those is they do potentially cause diarrhea. So like if you already have a patient who's having a lot of diarrhea, like milk of magnesia in particular, may worsen that. So that's something to think about. And we want to make sure they have good absorption from their GI tract. And this, of course, is for patients that have real mild hypomagnesemia, and we're, we're not having any acute situation. And so in these situations, we just go PO or we're just going to go with two grams IV. Typically, this will be given over two to four hours very slowly if we can't do an oral medication. Now, as we start progressing to more moderate hypomagnesemia, so we're now getting where we're in the one, two, one, five. This is where we start thinking about using two to four grams of mag sulfate IV. And this is where we're starting to move into a more concerning place. Of course, you renally adjust the doses. But as we move to severe asymptomatic hypomagnesemia, So this is like 1.2 milligrams per deciliter. This is where we really start to change our thought process in terms of how we treat it. Because the reality is magnesium is pretty safe in its administration. If we're asymptomatic, but we have pretty severe hypomagnesemia, this is where we start to think about doing something like some scheduled IV doses of 2 grams doing it like every six hours. So we don't have to rapidly administer it, follow normal protocols, but doing it every six to eight hours. Or we do a continuous infusion, four to eight grams, and we can do that like over 24 hours. And we'll, of course, check our electrolytes. So we're also going to be checking things like calcium, mag, phos, right? As we're doing this, we want to continue to trend these lab values. The big concern, and I think it's sort of what we really want to talk about, 
is specifically when we have severe life-threatening hypomagnesemia where we are symptomatic. So either we have severe dysrhythmias or we're in a situation where we have something like torsades, seizures. It is generally shown that it is, it is very safe to do an initial loading dose of four grams. So what can be done is two grams IV over about five minutes and then two additional grams over about 30 minutes to an hour. This is something that we do. It's part of our protocols at our facility when we have torsades and some VT arrhythmias where we weren't able to initially maybe cardiovert the patient. We've done an amiobolus. A lot of times we're going to go ahead and give magnesium like this because, again, Pushing the mag up a little bit is not much of a concern, and the risk-benefit analysis, the benefit way outweighs the risk. Now, after this happens, typically we're going to be talking about a maintenance dose that's renally adjusted that may be continuous for up to 24 hours. Now, our one concern about rapid administration of magnesium is an AV block, and so you can also have muscular weakness, but the AV block is the big one that we're concerned with. Remember, if you suddenly flood the magnesium, right, we're now inverting that process that we were concerned about, right? And so we can also dramatically reduce calcium levels potentially if we give a rapid amount of magnesium. So again, they are there. We just have to think about those two risks. In the CV world, in the cardiac world, there's also some really specific protocols that are used for post-cardiac surgery patients. And so often these can include things like loading patients with four grams of mag over like an hour. Some people will do it up to over four hours. I've seen other protocols where they actually just do a gram an hour and it's just continuous a gram an hour, sometimes up to 24 hours, and they'll just do Q6 electrolytes to make sure. And a lot of times what they're going to do is actually push the magnesium up to like three to four milligrams per deciliter, so a bit above normal, and also trend potassium at the same time. Because remember, these two, we got to look at them together. And so a lot of times when we have these really bad ventricular dysrhythmias, especially in a cardiac setting, a lot of times the issue is not just the fact that our heart is irritable, it's post-surgical, we've had an MI, it's that we have multiple electrolyte abnorm abnormalities. And so often that's something that we're looking at. And so just understand if you're kind of new to the cardiac or CV world and you see some standing protocols where you start magnesium postoperatively, this is the reason that, that we are doing this specifically. Now, let's move to hypermagnesemia. So we just talked about one of our biggest concerns, right, which is that potential AV block if it's administered too quickly. Thankfully, in our, like our cardiovascular ICU, most of our post-surgical patients have pacing wires. And so it's something that is, is beneficial and that we're able, we usually have V wires on most of our patients, so we could pace if we needed to. And we also can do transcutaneous pacing if we had to. And so, of course, that's where we weigh the risk-benefit analysis of, of the rapid administration in these settings versus not. But that is one of our big concerns is that AV block. Now, some of our very specific clinical manifestations for hyper 
magnesemia is going to be things like hyporeflexia. So remember, when our mag's really low, we tend to be really hyper-excitable. Conversely, we're going to have really poor reflexes. And so again, to remember, magnesium actually can be somewhat of a muscular relaxant. It's something our anesthesiologists will sometimes administer post-surgically to patients. It has a relaxing effect, but it's not specific. And so we can have fairly widespread hyporeflexia. We can actually have some hypotension because of the effect on the vessels. We can have some bradycardia potentially. We talked about the AV block. We're really concerned about a widening QRS, which does happen. We can have some peak T waves, can kind of mimic hyperkalemia. We can have some heart block too. So these are things we really want to think about. Now, we can have some other things, though, neurologically. We can have some muscular weakness, but it can actually affect our, our diaphragm, and so we can actually have some respiratory failure. We can have things like delirium, even coma. Our smooth muscle in particular, though, is what's really affected. So we can have some smooth muscle paralysis, and this can be little things like urinary retention and ileus, pupillary dilation, and so these are some of those things we're thinking about. Now, the reality is these are less common, but our reasons for it are one renal failure, and that makes a lot of sense. Now, it typically is pretty severe renal failure, but it's usually not just renal failure. There's usually some other source of magnesium that's leading to this. So one, let's think of it externally. So Often, this is specifically overusing antacids, which is a real thing. You know those people who do antacids continuously. And this is a real concern for hypermagnesemia, especially if you also have some renal failure. We see this too with people doing magnesium-containing laxatives or enemas, which again, there's a lot of patients I've had who they take milk and magnesia like every single day, and they also take antacids. And so again, you can see how this can happen pretty easily. We also see this in magnesium fusions, especially for preeclamptic patients, also if they did have some renal issues. And so again, those really long-term infusions, it's something to think about. Now, we can also get it from things like cellular lysis. And so, of course, too, this is things like hemolysis, rhabdomyolysis, tumor lysis syndrome, crush injury, severe burns. These things, too, again, can also cause hyperkalemia as well because, again, it's releasing the magnesium. And so we now kind of can understand some of the reasons behind it. So what on earth do we do? Well, of course, as always, we're going to do a full electrolyte panel. We want to look, again, calcium, magnesium, phosphorus. We also want to make sure we didn't do hemolysis in our labs, right? This was like when we have hyperkalemia. Did we cause a lot of hemolysis that released potassium that made it an artificial lab? That's that pseudo-hypermagnesemia. Make sure your data's good. Other things to consider, we could look at an LDH, creatinine kinase, uric acid. Those three specifically are going to help evaluate for things like hemolysis, rhabdomyolysis, or tumor lysis. They can be incredibly helpful to look at the full clinical picture. So now what do we do? Often in moderate cases, we don't have any respiratory cardiac symptoms. We can do volume resuscitation, so we have a dilutional effect. We can treat, of course, 
our underlying cause, right? Now, we could use Lasix. This is like when we have hyperkalemia. Do we really want to treat it with Lasix? The big concern is, as always, volume status. How, what is the risk-to-benefit analysis? Because if we have too much diuresis, of course, we could end up in a place where we have more concerns from that than we do just from the hypermagnesemia. Now, what we care about, we have severe cardiac symptoms. So we have respiratory failure. We have an AV block now. We're, you know, we're, we're severely bradycardic. What do we do? Step one, IV calcium. Typically, we're going to do about two grams calcium gluconate, about five minutes, or one gram calcium chloride. Sometimes you may have to repeat this. Remember, when you give calcium, it does not have a super long effect, or we need a continuous infusion. That has a cardiac stabilizing effect on our myocardium. Now, the next thing is eliminate. How can we get the potassium out, or sorry, the magnesium out? And again, this is going to be things like Lasix, though often what we need to do is give something like saline with the Lasix because we're going to lose a lot of volume, but we don't want to give more mag. And of course, LR has mag in it. So we want to think through those things. Or we can do emergent dialysis, especially if we're in renal failure. And so that's our general process with hypermagnesemia. This has been a longer podcast. But I think I wanted to try to get everything in here in one episode to really help us think through magnesium. I'm going to do some future episodes where we're going to talk about torsades. We're going to talk about preeclampsia. We're going to talk about, you know, post-cardiac surgery and why we specifically do prophylactic magnesium. We'll talk more about those specifically. I hope in general this episode was helpful. Uh, I appreciate hanging in there. It's been a few weeks since I've done an episode. I've been interviewing with uh, schools lately, and I just kind of took a month to work on my school interviews, and I'm excited to just jump into a whole bunch of episodes. So my plan is that the in a few days, we're going to have an episode looking actually at blood pressure cuffs versus arterial lines. It's something that I'm really encountering a lot of questions about the last few months from orientees, and I think it warrants a, a good deep dive to talk through arterial lines and blood pressure cuffs. As always, thanks for listening. 